Hey guys, my name's Drew. Welcome. Good to see you guys here. You might notice that I got a new Bible. And uh, the reason I'm preaching from this cool blue Bible here that you guys all want is because I've forgotten the past few weeks to remind you guys that if you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one as a gift. And that's because at Salt City Church, we believe that the Bible is one of the greatest treasures that a person can possibly have in this life. Because it's through the Bible that God speaks to us, which is specifically why we just teach through the Bible verse by verse. And so if you haven't been here with us yet, we are teaching through the Gospel of Mark. And it's been awesome because the Gospel of Mark just clearly portrays to us who Jesus is. Now, a couple weeks back, I had a great conversation with a guy after the service, and he was sitting toward the back, and he asked me after the service, how do you get college students to come to your church? And he said, you know, I came, and I was expecting for the people who came to your church to basically to be a bunch of weirdos. And he's like, I don't understand how you get like kind of semi-normal people to show up at your church. And I began to explain to him that we are not teaching people how to improve their lives by obeying the rules, but instead we're preaching about Jesus and how he's the only one who could keep the rules and how he died in our place for our sins. And this guy is agnostic, maybe even an atheist. And I asked him, well, how do you think people get into right relationship with God? And he gave kind of a very, what I would call stereotypical response. He said, here's the way that I conceive of it. He said, someday, if there's a God and I face him, there's basically like these giant scales. And he said, on one side of the scales are all the good things that you did in your life. And on the other side of the scale, there's all the bad things that you did in your life. And essentially, if the good things outweigh the bad things, then you get into heaven. But if the bad things outweigh the good things, then tough luck, you go to hell. And I began to explain to him again about Jesus. And it was so interesting as I was talking to him because I think that he thought that we were coming to a point of agreement. He thought that I sort of agreed with the whole scales thing. Now, here's what I want to make very clear to you. I've never seen anyone in my life, when they're talking about the scales thing, do it with any kind of joy or excitement, right? Like, have you ever heard somebody be like, guys, I have to tell you something that I discovered about God. He basically operates on this work system, and if your good deeds outweigh your bad, then you get to go to heaven, but if they don't, then you go to hell. Isn't that awesome? Like, no one is going around proclaiming that as good news. In fact, it's like the most run-of-the-mill thing across basically the entire religious landscape of the world. That's what people believe. And I want to make very clear this morning that we actually have good news, something worth telling people about. And the good news is actually a person, and his name's Jesus. And this is what Jesus is going to tell us this morning. 
that he came to give what we could never earn. Okay, as we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark, we've already been seeing this truth over and over again. And in the verse just before the verses we look at this morning, this is what Jesus said. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, this is the good news that Jesus wants to give to us this morning. The only way that you can possibly get into heaven is if the bad things that you do far outweigh the good things that you've ever done. See, Jesus wants to invert this whole perception that we have of religion. And so what we're going to look at is essentially three different stories that provide three different snapshots of Jesus freely giving to us what we could never earn through our good works. The first thing we're going to see is that Jesus brings the party. The second thing is that Jesus gives rest. And the third thing is that Jesus heals freely. First one, you guys are going to like this one. Jesus brings the party. It'll take us a little bit to get there. So think with me through Mark chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. The verses will be on the screen, or you can turn there. Mark chapter 2, 18 through 22. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins." But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So here's what's going on. You've got basically two groups of people. You've got the disciples of John and you've got the Pharisees. And these are all the religious folks in that day. And like religious folks do, they fasted. But what's interesting is these people come to Jesus and they're like, okay, why do John the Baptist's disciples fast and the Pharisees' disciples fast? fast, but your disciples don't fast. Now, what's interesting about that is that this person puts the fasting of John the Baptist's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples in the same category, even though these two groups of people could not be more different. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. In Mark chapter 1, we saw that the disciples of John the Baptist were coming out to the Jordan River to be baptized by him and they were confessing their sins. What we know about Pharisees is they didn't think they had any sin to confess. So John the Baptist actually gets mad at the Pharisees because they don't confess any sin. So one of the reasons that the disciples of John the Baptist are fasting is with this sense of contrition about their sins. They feel bad for what they've done. The Pharisees are very different than that. The Pharisees are not fasting because they feel bad about what they've done. The Pharisees are fasting out of this sense of devotion to God. In other words, the Pharisees are really good at keeping the rules. In fact, 
they like to take it way too far. The Pharisees were known to fast two times a week, which is ridiculous, actually, if you read the Old Testament, because the Old Testament only requires one day of fasting per year on the Day of Atonement. And so the Pharisees took a very easy command and they turned it into a rule that only they could keep so that they could make themselves look good in front of other people. In addition to John the Baptist's disciples fasting, sort of confessing their sins, they also were fasting for a very specific reason in this passage, and that's because their leader, John the Baptist, had just been thrown into prison. So John is in prison. They're feeling bad about their sins. Their leader's in prison, so they're fasting. So you could basically say that John the Baptist's disciples are fasting out of this sense of desperation. They're like, man, life is not going well. I'm messed up. Our leader's in prison. We need God to do something for us was sort of their mantra. So they're like, maybe we could get God to do something for us if we fasted. The Pharisees, on the other hand, are using a fast not to get God to do something for them, but they're actually doing it for God. They think God needs them to do something for him. And so Jesus actually comes in at this point and he says, the root issue of the reason that you guys are fasting is surprisingly the same. And as Jesus often does, it seems like he's not really answering their question. And he goes off on this whole thing about a wedding party. And he's like, okay, think about a wedding. Is anyone who's at a wedding fasting after the groom shows up? Now, just imagine that. If you were at a wedding and there's a whole bunch of people there and you know the wedding party shows up and I know it's culturally probably a little bit different then, but... There's similarities, right? It's a party. The wedding party shows up. You've got the music bumping. Everybody's dancing on the aisle. You're sitting next to somebody and you're like, hey, you want to go up to the buffet line with me? He's like, nope, I'm fasting. Like the dude just picked the wrong day to fast. That's a horrible idea. And Jesus is saying, here's the reason my disciples aren't fasting. My disciples aren't fasting because I am like a groom at a wedding. And what Jesus is doing that the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist, because they were well-versed in the Old Testament, would have picked up, is he's picking up on this theme from the Old Testament where God says things like, your husband is your maker. You see, God, throughout the Old Testament, calls himself the husband of the people of Israel. So what Jesus is saying is, the reason my disciples aren't fasting is because they have God with them. Maybe if you were to put what Jesus is saying into one verse, if he were to state it positively, he would say, where I am, there the party is also. He's saying, guys, you don't fast at a party. You have fun at a party. You enjoy a party. Now he's saying, here's the thing. There's going to be this point where the groom leaves the earth. This is foreshadowing of Jesus' 
death and resurrection and ascension back into heaven. He's saying, those days are coming. When I leave, then my disciples will fast. And he points us in all of this to the meaning of fasting. In other words, Jesus is saying, fasting is not primarily about your devotion to God. It's not you bringing God a gift that he needs. And it's not primarily about desperation. It's not, I have something that I need God to give to me. Fasting is primarily a declaration. It's a declaration to yourself and it's a declaration to Jesus that you miss him. That you want to be with him. That if you could be with one person in the world above all others, it would be Jesus Christ. Because you believe that he and he alone could satisfy every single desire of your soul. You see, what Jesus wants to give you first, foremost, and primarily is he wants to give you a relationship with himself. He wants you to deeply and truly know him. Now, I remember um, when my wife Melissa and I were first dating, um, we'd been dating probably four or five months, and then she went on a mission trip to China. And I'll never forget when she was gone, I, I just missed her so bad. It was, it was terrible. And, and there were like incidental, incremental fasts that were happening in my life where I would just kind of sit at the dinner table and just stir the food around because I, I just missed her so bad, I just stopped eating for part of the time. And, uh, and, and here's the thing. Think if, while she was in China, I had, um, I had, I had told her basically like, I'm doing, I, I'm, I'm missing you, not because I really miss you. I'm writing you these notes and, and thinking about you because it's my duty, because this is what I'm supposed to do. Would that have honored her in, in any way whatsoever? What if I had said to her, I'm so desperate for you to come back so that you can bring me something from China. Like I've always wanted like a terracotta warrior statue. Neither of those things would have honored her at all. But what was true in my heart is I was just aching to be with her. And what Jesus is saying is if you really know me, if you really see that relationship with me will satisfy every desire of your heart, you won't use fasting to prop yourself up or to get something from me. You'll use fasting to remind yourself that I'm the one who meets all of your needs. This would be my encouragement to you guys this week. Just pick a day to fast in this mindset. Give up a couple meals, Instead of eating, just spend time with Jesus. Fasting is, is simply pushing aside food to focus on your relationship with God. Don't do it because you have to. Don't do it because you need something from God. Just do it to declare to your own soul and to God that what you need most is him. Okay, 
So not only in this passage does Jesus bring us to himself, he shows us that he is all that we need, Jesus also gives us rest. Mark chapter 2, 23 through 28. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him. How he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So things start to escalate kind of one notch here. So the disciples and Jesus, they're just having fun. They're just walking through a field that happens to be on the Sabbath. And they're just plucking heads of grain. And then they're probably taking the grain and they're rubbing it between their hands and they're eating a little bit of it. And the Pharisees, I mean, they're just straight childish here, right? I think they're sort of following Jesus and his disciples around like spies. And I imagine they're like crouched down in the grain. And then all of a sudden at this point, they pop up. And they're like, look, you guys are doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And, you know, instead of Jesus being like, busted, we broke the law. I'm sorry. Instead, Jesus, always prepared with a response, looks at them and he totally condescendingly speaks to them, which I find just delightful and hilarious. He's like, have you ever read what David did? Now, this would have been totally offensive to these guys because these guys were like theology professors. And so for him to say, not only have you never read in the Bible, like not only had they read this passage, they had likely written like position papers on it. They were well-versed. Some of them probably had this passage of scripture memorized. And so for Jesus to even question that they had read it, they are totally just back on their heels and totally offended at this point. And then he goes through this story that if you go back and read through it, it is actually a little bit confusing. So David is with this band of soldiers and he goes to the tabernacle and his soldiers and him are hungry. It happens to be the Sabbath. And he goes in and he asks the priest, do you guys have any food that we could eat? And the priest is like, well, we do have some bread But here's the thing. This bread is actually the bread of the presence. And if you know about the bread of the presence in the Old Testament, you know that only the priests were ever supposed to eat the bread of the presence. So they would have 12 loaves. They'd be sitting on this table in front of the Lord. And then those 12 loaves would be removed and the priests were supposed to eat them. And so the priest is like, okay, we got these 12 loaves. And David, in the particular story, doesn't say, oh no, it's not lawful for us to eat the bread. We could never do that and break God's commands. His soldiers and him sit down and they chow. They eat the loaves of bread. And so you see what Jesus is doing is he's saying, nowhere in the Old Testament does it say that you're not supposed to pluck heads of grain and eat it on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees knew 
that that was just a tradition that they had made up. But it does say that no one is supposed to eat the bread except the priests. So what he's saying is, if you condemn David, which they would never be willing to do, then you'd be totally lost on what to do with me. And so Jesus is catching them in their own craftiness. He's saying to them, look guys, we're just plucking heads of grain. How could you possibly condemn us for this? And the Pharisees are just totally stuck at this point. They don't know what to say because they're such strict law keepers that they have totally missed the heart of God. And Jesus says to them, do you know why it was okay for David to eat the bread of the presence, even though technically it was against the strict ritual letter of the law? He says, here's why it's okay. The Sabbath was made for man not man for the Sabbath. In other words, the Sabbath is not a duty for you to keep, it's a gift for you to receive. And what God's intention in giving the Sabbath to his people was, was not to put burdens on their back, it was to give them rest. And then he makes this absolutely crazy claim. He says, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus consistently refers to himself in the Gospel of Mark as the Son of Man. And Son of Man means Messiah. Jesus is unequivocally in this passage referring to himself as the God who invented the rule called the Sabbath. He's saying, here's why I get to make the declaration about what's okay on the Sabbath and what's not okay is because I wrote the rules. And I'm telling you, that the Sabbath is for rest and fun, not to be hiding in grain, trying to catch people doing things that aren't work that you guys consider work. It's kind of like this, guys. Um, You guys know that I'm sort of like the king of my house, right? And I don't mean that in like a negative patriarchal way, so don't get that. But, But here's what I mean. I make up games for my kids to play. And I made up this one game that we play in the backyard and I call it fee fi fo fum Okay, and here's what we do in fee-fi-fo-fum. We go in the backyard, and there's a couple rules. One of the rules is you gotta shut the gate, okay? And the reason that you shut the gate is so that my one-and-a-half-year-old doesn't run out in the street and kill himself. So we gotta shut the gate, and then basically we run around, and I yell, fee-fi-fo-fum! And I just chase my kids all around the entire yard, and they run around, and they're like, ah! And they scream. But here's what my kids do all the time to have the game continually be fun and to sort of mix it up, they just keep adding rules to it. So my girls have taken on sort of the MO of being frozen characters. So one of them's like, I'm Elsa, I'm Anna. And they're like, we're on your team, dad, and we're gonna fee-fi-fo-fum too. And then my other two kids are like, okay, and every time you touch us, we actually get frozen and we can unfreeze each other. Anyway, the game just keeps going. It just keeps getting crazier. There's more and more rules. But here's the thing. I don't really care what the rules are because as the inventor of the game, the entire purpose of the game is that my kids would have fun playing it, that they would just enjoy themselves. So can you imagine if my next door neighbor 
looked over the fence, and this would be the equivalent of like the Pharisees. He saw us playing it, and he's like, those aren't the rules. <laughs> the, guys, last time you played this, the girls, they weren't, they weren't the Frozen characters. They were on the other team, and, and you guys shouldn't be playing that way. And I would look at him, and I would say, I am the lord of fee-fi-fo-fum. <laughs> we will play this game however we want to play this game. The purpose of this game is for me and my kids to have fun in the backyard. You're missing the heart of it. You see what Jesus is doing? He's saying, guys, lighten up. The Sabbath is a gift. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I want you to enjoy it. I want you to have fun. Okay, I told you in the first point that you were supposed to fast, and some of you were like, oh man, I'm not supposed to eat this week. Here's the second one. All of you can keep this one, okay? Here, here I think, is the application of this. Enjoy a day with Jesus this week. What, what do you enjoy doing to rest? Where do you find your soul just filled and satisfied? As you look back at your life, maybe there's something that you haven't done in a while that you just need to do to sort of get away and to connect with Jesus. I think if we do that, we'll get more at the heart of the Sabbath than sort of going back and forth like, is this work? Is this not work? I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can do that. Jesus would say, cool it. The Sabbath is about this. This afternoon is about this. Enjoying your relationship with me. Now there's some fence around it, right? He doesn't want you running out of the yard. He doesn't want you running into sin. But as long as you're sort of in these parameters, he wants you to just enjoy relationship with him. So Jesus gives rest. Okay, here, so here's the question. What about just the, the inner brokenness that we all experience? Okay, we're, we're sort of talking about these outward things. We're talking about fasting. We're talking about the Sabbath. But what about just the stuff Jordan was talking about earlier? Just that brokenness in our lives, the, the character flaws that we had, the things that we need healing from. Here's the good news from this passage to sort of end it. It's that Jesus heals freely. Look at Mark chapter three, verses one through six. Stuff's about to get real. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. So you thought the the scene in the field of grain got crazy. This just takes it up another notch. So Jesus is in the synagogue and he's there and the Pharisees catch wind that he might be there to heal somebody. And they're standing there and their express purpose in being there is that they may see Jesus break the Sabbath and that they'd be there to accuse him because they considered even healing somebody a breaking of the Sabbath. How ridiculous is that? 
So Jesus pulls over a real person. This doesn't become theoretical anymore. It becomes absolutely real. He pulls this guy over who has a deformity in his hand. Likely this guy wasn't even able to use his hand. He was considered in their society damaged goods. But you go even deeper than that, and I think the reason that Jesus pulled him aside and used somebody who is physically crippled to illustrate this is because he's undermining the entire worldview of the Pharisees in this moment. And so Jesus asked him the question, like, is it, would it be good for me to heal him on the Sabbath or do you want me to destroy him? Is, is it good to, to love people or is it good to kill people? And the, the Pharisees are so caught up in their own ways, they just sit there, they're silent. They don't say a word. And it says Jesus is grieved and Jesus is deeply angry in that moment. You see, in the mindset of a Pharisee, the reason that that man's hand was crippled and withered is because of some sin that he had committed. They attached physical deformity to spiritual impurity. And so they thought, the reason that I have sort of this position of authority that I have in society, the reason I don't have any physical deformities is because I've done the right thing my whole life. And so the reason that they're unwilling to answer Jesus is because if Jesus heals this man in their presence, he flips their entire worldview upside down. He changes everything because he shows that the way to get wholeness in your life is not through your performance, it's through the grace of God. So Jesus pulls the guy over. He heals his hand. And the Pharisee's only reaction is to leave, and we see a pattern that starts in the Gospel of Mark. They seek to destroy Jesus. You see, they were so committed to sort of that scales way of living. They were so committed to their own righteousness that they would rather see Jesus destroyed, crucified, than just simply admit that they don't have their stuff together. See, it's sort of like this. Imagine that you were a world-renowned cancer researcher, okay? You'd gone to all the best schools, Harvard, MIT. You, you, were, you were set apart. You were like the best in your field. You had devoted yourself to this. And in fact, you got a lot of kudos for it. Like you went to a lot of big medical conferences and spoke at them about the research that you were doing. And then all of a sudden you start to catch wind that there might actually be someone who has cured cancer. And you know that you shouldn't feel this way, but immediately you feel threatened by it because you understand that if it's true that this person cured cancer, then you're actually gonna be out of work and that your expertise 
is going to be completely obsolete. And so it turns out to be true. You find out this person actually just invented this little pill, and if anybody takes it, they're completely cured of cancer. And so you start plotting, right? You're like, how am I going to destroy this before it gets on the market? Because if it gets on the market, then I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to lose everything that I have. Now, now let me ask you the question. If that was you, what would change your attitude? What, what would change your view? Well, one thing that could change your view is that you start to actually have a heart for other people, right? You're like, this is great for the world. I don't care about my job. This is amazing for the world. And if somebody gets this, this pill, I, I just want to help this guy get it to as many people as possible. Or you could discover that you have cancer. You see, the Pharisees hated Jesus because they didn't think that they had spiritual cancer. When they saw him healing other people, they didn't rejoice in it. They saw it as a threat to their very existence and way of life. And I just want to plead with you, if you're here and you're like, you get kind of upset, honestly, when we talk about grace and when we sort of disparage religion and say, man, you can't earn your way to God through your performance. Can I just plead with you and say, you have spiritual cancer. This is not a time to argue with me or to argue with Jesus. And the only possible way that you can be healed is through the finished work of Christ. You see, the Bible says that it's by his wounds that we are healed. Jesus, throughout the Gospel of Mark, is pointing us forward to this greater healing that he wants to do in our lives. You see, Jesus healed people physically, but he came to the earth to do something far more profound than that. He came to the earth to die on the cross for your sin, to take your place. If you will acknowledge, yeah, I'm broken. Yes, I have spiritual cancer. Yes, I can't heal myself. And instead of trying to climb the ladder of your performance to get to God, you will bow the knee before Jesus Christ and say, I could never earn my way to God. Jesus, thank you that you made a way where there is no way. Jesus will trade you his perfection for your sin. Will you take him up on his offer? Will you receive the healing that he wants to give you? I pray you will. Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you that um, you provide a way where there was no way, um, that you free us from trying to perform our way into heaven or into relationship with you, that you get, off, get us off the treadmill, and then instead you offer us this beautiful, amazing, free grace. I just pray for that person here who's just wrestling through 
how to receive that. Maybe they're feeling like, um, man, they, they just could never um, deserve or earn what you are giving. And I just ask that you would break through and, and show them that that's the point, <laughs> that grace is a free gift and that it's amazing and that it's blood-bought and that you paid the price. We could never earn it or deserve it. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.